Chapter Eleven of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Eleven. Some Erewhonian Trials. In Erewhon, as in other countries, there are some courts of justice that deal with special subjects. Misfortune generally, as I have above explained, is considered more or less criminal, but it admits of classification, and a court is assigned to each of the main heads under which it can be supposed to fall. Not very long after I had reached the capital I strolled into the personal bereavement court, and was much both interested and pained by listening to the trial of a man who was accused of having just lost a wife to whom he had been tenderly attached, and who had left him with three little children of whom the eldest was only three years old. The defense which the prisoner's counsel endeavored to establish was that the prisoner had never really loved his wife. But it broke down completely, for the public prosecutor called witness after witness who deposed to the fact that the couple had been devoted to one another, and the prisoner repeatedly wept as incidents were put in evidence that reminded him of the irreparable nature of the loss he had sustained. The jury returned a verdict of guilty after very little deliberation, but recommended the prisoner to mercy on the ground that he had but recently insured his wife's life for a considerable sum, and might be deemed lucky inasmuch as he had received the money without demur from the insurance company, though he had only paid two premiums. I have just said that the jury found the prisoner guilty. When the judge passed sentence, I was struck with the way which the prisoner's counsel was rebuked for having referred to a work in which the guilt of such misfortune as the prisoner's was extenuated to a degree that roused the indignation of the court. "'We shall have,' said the judge, "'these crude and subversionary books from time to time until it is recognized as an axiom of morality that luck is the only fit object of human veneration.' How far a man has any right to be more lucky and hence more venerable than his neighbors is a point that always has been and always will be settled proximately by a kind of higgling and haggling of the market, and ultimately by brute force. But however this may be, it stands to reason that no man should be allowed to be unlucky to more than a very moderate extent. Then, turning to the prisoner, the judge continued, "'You have suffered a great loss.' Nature attaches a severe penalty to such offenses, and human law must emphasize the decrees of nature. But for the recommendation of the jury, I should have given you six months' hard labor. I will, however, commute your sentence to one of three months, with the option of a fine of twenty-five percent of the money you have received from the insurance company. The prisoner thanked the judge, and said that as he had no one to look after his children if he was sent to prison, he would embrace the option mercifully permitted him by his lordship, and pay the sum he had named. He was then removed from the dock. The next case was that of a youth barely arrived at man's estate, who was charged with having been swindled out of a large property during his minority by his guardian, who was also one of his nearest relations. His father had been long dead, and it was for this reason that his offense came on for trial in the personal bereavement court. The lad, who was undefended, pleaded that he was young, inexperienced, greatly in awe of his guardian, and without independent professional advice. "'Young man,' said the judge sternly, "'do not talk nonsense. 
People have no right to be young, inexperienced, greatly in awe of their guardians, and without independent professional advice. If by such indiscretions they outrage the moral sense of their friends, they must expect to suffer accordingly. He then ordered the prisoner to apologize to his guardian, and to receive twelve strokes with a cat of nine tails. But I shall perhaps best convey to the reader an idea of the entire perversion of thought which exists among this extraordinary people by describing the public trial of a man who was accused of pulmonary consumption, an offence which was punished with death until quite recently. It did not occur till I had been some months in the country, and I am deviating from chronological order in giving it here, but I had perhaps better to do so in order that I may exhaust this subject before proceeding to others. Moreover, I should never come to an end were I to keep to a strictly narrative form and detail the infinite absurdities with which I daily came in contact. The prisoner was placed in the dock, and the jury were sworn much as in Europe. Almost all our own modes of procedure were reproduced, even to the requiring the prisoner to plead guilty or not guilty. He pleaded not guilty, and the case proceeded. The evidence for the prosecution was very strong, but I must do the court the justice to observe that the trial was absolutely impartial. Counsel for the prisoner was allowed to urge everything that could be said in his defense. The line taken was that the prisoner was simulating consumption in order to defraud an insurance company, from which he was about to buy an annuity, and that he hoped thus to obtain it on more advantageous terms. If this could have been shown to be the case, he would have accepted a criminal prosecution and been sent to a hospital as for a moral ailment. The view, however, was one which could not be reasonably sustained in spite of all the ingenuity and eloquence of one of the most celebrated advocates of the country. The case was only too clear, for the prisoner was almost at the point of death, and it was astonishing that he had not been tried and convicted long previously. His coughing was incessant during the whole trial, and it was all that the two jailers in charge of him could do to keep him on his legs until it was over. The summing up of the judge was admirable. He dwelt upon every point that could be construed in favor of the prisoner, but as he proceeded it became clear that the evidence was too convincing to admit of doubt, and there was but one opinion in the court as to the impending verdict when the jury retired from the box. They were absent for about ten minutes, and on their return the foreman pronounced the prisoner guilty. There was a faint murmur of applause, but it was instantly repressed. The judge then proceeded to pronounce sentence in words which I can never forget, and which I copied out into a notebook next day from the report that was published in the leading newspaper. I must condense it somewhat, and nothing which I could say would give more than a faint idea of the solemn, not to say majestic, severity with which it was delivered. The sentence was as follows. Prisoner at the bar, you have been accused of the great crime of laboring under pulmonary consumption, and after an impartial trial before a jury of your countrymen, you have been found guilty. Against the justice of the verdict, I can say nothing. The evidence against you was conclusive, and it only remains for me to pass such a sentence upon you as shall satisfy the ends of the law." That sentence must be a very severe one. It pains me much to see one who is yet so young, and whose prospects in life were otherwise so excellent, brought to this distressing condition by a constitution which I can only regard as radically vicious. But yours is no case for compassion. 
This is not your first offense. You have led a career of crime, and have only profited by the leniency shown you upon past occasions to offend yet more seriously against the laws and institutions of your country. You were convicted of aggravated bronchitis last year, and I find that though you are now only twenty-three years old, you have been imprisoned on no less than fourteen occasions for illnesses of a more or less hateful character. In fact, it is not too much to say that you have spent the greater part of your life in a jail. It is all very well for you to say that you came of unhealthy parents, and had a severe accident in your childhood which permanently undermined your constitution. Excuses such as these are the ordinary refuge of the criminal, but they cannot for one moment be listened to by the ear of justice. I am not here to enter upon curious metaphysical questions as to the origin of this or that, questions to which there would be no end were their introduction once tolerated, and which would result in throwing the only guilt on the tissues of the primordial cell or on the elementary gases. There is no question of how you came to be wicked, but only this, namely, are you wicked or not? This has been decided in the affirmative. Neither can I hesitate for a single moment to say that it has been decided justly. You are a bad and dangerous person, and stand branded in the eyes of your fellow countrymen with one of the most heinous known offenses. It is not my business to justify the law. The law may in some cases have its inevitable hardships, and I may feel regret at times that I have not the option of passing a less severe sentence than I am compelled to do. But yours is no such case. On the contrary, had not the capital punishment for consumption been abolished, I should certainly inflict it now. It is intolerable that an example of such terrible enormity should be allowed to go at large unpunished. Your presence in the society of respectable people would lead the less able-bodied to think more lightly of all forms of illness. Neither can it be permitted that you should have the chance of corrupting unborn beings who might hereafter pester you. The unborn must not be allowed to come near you, and this not so much for their protection, for they are our natural enemies, as for our own. For since they will not be utterly gainsaid, it must be seen to that they shall be quartered upon those who are least likely to corrupt them. But independently of this consideration, and independently of the physical guilt which attaches itself to a crime so great as yours, there is yet another reason why we should be unable to show you mercy, even if we were inclined to do so. I refer to the existence of a class of men who lie hidden among us, and who are called physicians. Were the severity of the law, or the current feeling of the country to be relaxed never so slightly, these abandoned persons, who are now compelled to practice secretly and can be consulted only at the greatest risk, would become frequent visitors in every household. Their organization and their intimate acquaintance with the all-family secrets would give them a power, both social and political, which nothing could resist. The head of the household would become subordinate to the family doctor, who would interfere between man and wife, between master and servant, until the doctors should be the only depositories of power in the nation, and have all that we hold precious at their mercy. A time of universal dephysicianalization would ensue. Medicine vendors of all kinds would abound in our streets and advertise in all our newspapers. There is one remedy for this, and one only. It is that which the laws of this country have long received and acted upon, and consists in the sternest repression of all diseases whatsoever, as soon as their existence is made manifest to the eye of the law. Would that that eye were far more piercing than it is. 
but I will enlarge no further upon things that are themselves so obvious. You may say that it is not your fault. The answer is ready enough at hand, and it amounts to this, that if you had been born of healthy and well-to-do parents, and been well taken care of when you were a child, you would never have offended against the laws of your country, nor found yourself in your present disgraceful position. If you tell me that you had no hand in your parentage and education, and that it is therefore unjust to lay these things to your charge, I answer that whether your being in a consumption is your fault or no, it is a fault in you, and it is my duty to see that against such faults as this the commonwealth shall be protected. You may say that it is your misfortune to be a criminal. I answer that it is your crime to be unfortunate. Lastly, I should point out that even though the jury had acquitted you, a supposition that I cannot seriously entertain, I should have felt it my duty to inflict a sentence hardly less severe than that which I must pass at present, for the more you had been found guiltless of the crime imputed to you, the more you would have been found guilty of one hardly less heinous. I mean the crime of having been maligned unjustly. I do not hesitate, therefore, to sentence you to imprisonment with hard labor for the rest of your miserable existence. During that period I would earnestly entreat you to repent of the wrongs you have done already, and to entirely reform the constitution of your whole body. I entertain but little hope that you will pay attention to my device. You are already far too abandoned. Did it rest with myself, I should add nothing in mitigation of the sentence which I have passed. But it is the merciful provision of the law that even the most hardened criminal shall be allowed some one of the three official remedies which is to be prescribed at the time of his conviction. I shall therefore order that you receive two tablespoons of castor oil daily, until the pleasure of the court be further known. When this sentence was concluded, the prisoner acknowledged in a few scarcely audible words that he was justly punished, and that he had had a fair trial. He was then removed to the prison from which he was never to return. There was a second attempt at applause when the judge had finished speaking, but as before it was at once repressed, and though the feeling of the court was strongly against the prisoner, there was no show of any violence against him, if one may accept a little hooting from the bystanders when he was being removed in the prisoner's van. Indeed, nothing struck me more during my whole sojourn in the country than the general respect for law and order. End of chapter 11